and welcome to The Right Idea, where today we're going to discuss all the ins and outs of the people and the policy and the politics of everything that goes on at the Capitol and across the state. I'm your co-host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, I'm, and I'm here with my venerable co-host, uh, Vice President of Policy, Derek Cohen. Derek, how's it going? Not too bad. We saw quite a uh, quite a busy week with not a lot going on, I'd say. Not a lot going on at the Capitol. Well, we'll get into exactly uh, how much did not go on up at the Capitol uh, in in our opening segment. Uh, but first, I want to lay it out. Um, later in this later in the show, we're going to do an in depth deep dive into parent empowerment and what that means. That's going to be a top priority for the Texas Legislature this year. We've heard a lot about parent empowerment over the last year. We're going to talk about exactly what that means, how that's defined, the policies maybe behind some of that, and uh, and why there might be a lot more to it uh, than you think. Uh, before that, we'll hit all the top topics of the day, where we'll, of course, talk about the inaugural speeches from the governor and the lieutenant governor. Um, and we've got some stories in there. One is in a, a Democratic attempt to rebrand a little bit, or rebrand the Democrats a little bit uh, for this session. You know, you're hearing some more fiscally responsible language there. So maybe there may be a, uh, a change of, of pace for what we're used to with the, with the left. You think uh, conser- conservatives are going to be convinced in, in the new rebrand? Time will tell. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, of course, the reason you're all actually here to hear all the rumors, the speculation, the conjecture, all the fun stuff that goes on up at the Capitol with the segment that I call Derek's Ledgeland Update. <laughs> we'll do this at the top of the uh, top of the show every single time. So Derek, as the kids might say, spill the tea. What's going on up at the Capitol? Well, well, thanks, Brian. And I, you know, we say facetiously that there's not a lot going on. Of course, we all know that they were still in the uh, the 60 day window where they're constitutionally prohibited, but for taking substantive action on non emergency stuff. But that being said, we still had two major events this week. We had, as you mentioned, the inaugural addresses where we uh, had the inauguration of both the governor and lieutenant governor, and they had an opportunity to give speeches and outline their priorities. Um, But we've also had the filing, and this is earlier than usual, the filing of the two chambers budgets. Hmm. And I think that in there, there's a lot to, um, there's a lot to like, there's some um, uh, question marks just in the policies and processes uh, that's going to surround some of the uh, some of the allocations, and I also think that there's an opportunity for you know a, a discussion to be had going forward on how do those two budgets tie in with those priorities as illustrated by both the lieutenant governor and the governor. So there's a lot there to speculate. We'll get into some of that with the top topics. That's one of the things I want to chat about <clears throat> is uh, the budget and kind of what we're hearing and what that means because some of the specifics are you know mm-hmm. you, once you start putting numbers on things and and um, talking about how much you're going to spend or how much you're going to cut, um, it kind of fills out some of the details. Um, but you know, the um, you mentioned the emergency items, and we still don't know what we're going to be, you know, in the emergency uh, items. And the governor probably won't won't talk about that until um, until his state of the state address. Um, but also, committee chairs are a big deal, and we're hearing mm-hmm. some rumors around the Capitol that maybe you know, as of right now, we don't know who the not committee chairs, but the but who's on each committee. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be really important too to uh, to to flesh out all of these ideas do this in the committee process. So right as of right now, we don't know who all is on the committees. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but talk a little bit about, you know, give us your insight on, you know, why it's so important, why that's a big deal for the for the, the political nerds that are following this stuff. Absolutely. And let's take it chamber by chamber. So the Senate is usually the one, uh, and there's usually not a terrible amount of time in between, but the Senate's usually the one to announce first. I mean, it's a lot easier to do, a, you know, a, uh, an arrangement with 31 people than it is uh, 150 mm-hmm. people or 149 people, I should say. Um, but not only that, but I'm also pretty sure that the folks within the Senate who are going to be chairing uh, certain committees are, are likely aware or have a really good uh, mm-hmm. indication of that already. Um, 
obviously we saw some movement on the committees themselves in the Senate. When I say that, I mean as they're outlined by the rules. We saw that higher ed and education are now one committee with higher ed as a subcommittee of the education committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also saw that Veterans Affairs and Border Security, uh, once used to be uh, one committee uh, mm-hmm. with both of them, have been split into two independent committees. So that's, I mean, this seems like it's uh, you know a bit pedantic, but... What what is the signal? The signal is that obviously there's going to be a very robust discussion, a holistic discussion around education. I think that we all know that's coming. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it also illustrates that we're going to have a very substantive, serious discussion on border security. Now, Veterans Affairs is obviously a very important, uh, uh, a very important uh, committee as well. But the workload generated by that committee and the Border Security Committee in the past were ones that you were able to knock them out with one committee mm-hmm. um, assignment. I'm of the mind, and you know, we discussed about we discussed uh, Biden's immigration policy last week. I'm I'm thinking that's just not cutting it anymore. Just the the situation out at the border requires very serious scrutiny, and the lieutenant governor has basically signaled that I am going to give it with my body that scrutiny with the body that I control. And it definitely makes sense. I mean, it's it's you know from a from a public uh, perspective, public opinion perspective, the border and immigration. I mean, we, again, we do a lot of polling at TBPF every single time we do a, run a poll and we ask people what the number one issue is in Texas. It is always, always border security and immigration. Uh, so maybe that's a response to the fact that that's, you know, whether it's, you know, local issues they're hearing about, you know, in their local communities, it seems like that that's one issue that is bubbling up in every community around Texas. A- absolutely. And I, and I think that you're only going to see it get more and more spotlight upon it with with just i'm just going to level with the abdication of the federal government there Mm -hmm. Uh, on the house side you know the house uh they they have a much more formalized process wherein uh seniority is taken into account um alongside preference uh they indicate to the speaker uh the membership indicates to the speaker where they would like to go with a you know with a seniority appointment or perhaps with other sort of credit that they have uh, and those those indications aren't even due till next week. So, I mean, that'll probably be a little bit longer. And like I said, it's easier to seat 31 senators than it is to seat uh, 149 House members. Sounds like sounds like sounds like a complicated mess sometimes, but it sounds like they're working through it. Well, nobody voted for no voted nobody voted for me for the speaker or the lieutenant governor. So luckily, <laughs> not, it's not my luckily it's not on my plate. Necessarily. Not our problem. Yeah, okay. Exactly. All right. Well, so not a lot going on. A lot of pomp and circumstance uh, of the uh, the inaugural um, you know announcements and the speeches mm. and the parties and the mm. you know all of that kind of stuff. Um, so that's kind of this week. That's kind of what everybody's paying attention to. It feels like. Like, uh, people are still excited. It feels like you know people are still getting we're getting mm-hmm. ready to to get after it. So well, let's dive into the speeches a little bit. Let's, let's go mm-hmm. to top topics. I've got two or three things I want to kind of chat about um, uh, for here today. The, the first one is you know again what did these what did these inaugural speeches signal in terms mm-hmm. of the priorities that you heard from both the the um, uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor? So just thirty thousand foot feedback. Uh, well, absolutely, and I think that <laughs> you, you ask any you know neutral observer what was the the main theme collectively of both lieutenant governor and the governor's speech. And I think that, you know, leading by a country mile, you're going to see education. You're going to see school choice, mm-hmm. um, as the uh, lieutenant governor said, um, parental empowerment. You know, those things, you know, have been simmering for reasons we've discussed before, but also just because 
I think we're at a point where it's a very viable discussion to have now. You see other themes there, too, uh, other uh, welcome themes, public safety being one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw ideas uh, been f- that have been filed already in the legislature that take multiple approaches to this, that, that look at... You know, what are the many ways we can secure our schools, that we can secure our communities? And you heard that come from the uh, the rostrum as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things is, you know, property taxes. You know, we, we discussed property taxes. We're going to discuss a little bit of that today. Uh, both budgets mentioned those, um, uh, mentioned, uh, you know, uh, some, some relief in there. But I think that the crescendo of how much pain people are feeling via the property tax. And again, we know you and I have discussed, this isn't just, you know, this isn't one person who owns a house versus one person who's renting and one person is going to get all the, you know, the windfall of that. Because obviously renters pay property taxes too, albeit indirectly. I have not met a single uh, landlord who's like, well, you know, I usually- Eat the property tax. Yes. (laughs) I'm just going to eat that for my- uh, (laughs) Uh, for my residents, but yeah, they get passed on as well. And I mean, you know, we're sitting here in Austin and, you know, just the rents here have been skyrocketing for decades. Mm -hmm. And so obviously it's something that's important to all Texans. Those are what I'd say would be the, 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 the top lines, but other things that were mentioned as well, I think are, we're going to see trickling out now, whether it rises to the level of say emergency item or chamber priority, those we're going to see, but I can definitely say that those top three, I think are fairly unassailable for where they've been positioned. So as somebody who's written a few speeches, uh, in my time, you know, for me, just, just taking, taking the both speeches and, and really all the rhetoric that's been around kind of the, for the first two weeks, I mean, a couple of things that I take away from it. Our number one is there is really, there's, there is a, um, there's an intentional focus on unity, I think at the top. Mm. Um, I mean, you actually had, you know, Dan Patrick stand up there and say, you know, the governor and I are all in on school choice. Mm. I mean, I think the takeaway there was that, you know, we're going to do school choice for a lot of people, uh, for the media, you know, they really focused on, you know, well, school choice is going to be a big priority for me. It was, you know, showing that there's no daylight there between, uh, the folks at the, at the top, the big three, so to speak. Mm. And, and, and frankly, um, you know, for the past, ever since the election, really, um, I think everyone's been kind of making, uh, trying to make that point that Republicans are, at least on the policy side of things, on most policy issues, mm. are in agreement on, you know, what should be done or the issues that, that uh, should be focused there. So that's one big thing that I, that I walked away with is that, um, you know, is that there's, there's going to be unity there. Uh, the second is, um, you know, is, is we have a state that functions. Mm. We have a state that can take on big issues in our legislature. And, you know, we're not... You know, we don't have super majorities in in each of the um, uh, of the chambers, um, uh, which means that you know Democrats will be at the table. Democrats will be giving speeches and making their points, and there'll be a real debate here. But at the end of the day, we're actually going to get things done, and we're going to have to pass a budget because, of course, we can't run deficits at the state mm. level. We're going to have to pass a budget, and the budget is going to um, have some serious measures of fiscal restraint. We're going to uh, do difficult things like like parent and empowerment or uh, or do the property tax. I mean, the stuff that I've looked at is very complex issues on, on how we collect and spend property taxes. Very difficult and getting in there um, and, and really trying to fix the system so we're not back here dealing with this every couple of years. There's a real sense that like they're trying to take on big issues and show that, that, that you know, state government, maybe conservative run government uh, can really fix the big issues and can really um, uh, make progress and make, you know, to some extent, make people's lives better. Uh, than they were, so it's it's the rhetoric to me um, uh, says a lot more than just the policy mm. stuff. Well, the unity the unity point is a really really good one, and obviously, 
you know, there's not going to be perfect consonance between the House, the Senate, and the, you know, between the big three. That's just, you know, one represents a body of 149 other members, one represents a body of 31 members, uh, and one (laughs) represents the entirety of the state. And so those are not necessarily things that overlap perfectly and, you know, circles on a Venn diagram. But I do think that we, we are seeing that that center of that Venn diagram mm-hmm. is the items that you just mentioned. And we are going to see some big, uh, I think, some big ideas. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some uh, big bad ideas, too. <laughs> I think we've already seen uh, uh, some of those filed as well. Uh, might, might even talk about some later. Uh, but I, I think that when it really started chartering a mandate for leadership, when I say mandate for leadership, I don't necessarily mean that in electoral margin. I mean a mandate for leadership saying that, you know, you put your trust in us. Here are our promises. Hold us to this work. Mm-hmm. You know, check our work on this, you know, here in two years and four years, whatever the case might be. And from what I've heard, both from talking to staff members and actual members that were in the attendance there, they're ready to get to work. And that is not specifically just with Republicans uh, or Republican staff. There are Mm -hmm. a lot of Democrats who took a lot away uh, from those speeches as well. You know, again, property taxes, you know, uh, last last, when you cut a check, you don't put what party you're on. uh, So that's one of the questions I want to ask as we kind of dive into the, the, you know, the, the, the various um, pieces of the speech is, is, you know, property tax is one of those where, you know, it's an 80% issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. 80% of the people say that tax uh, property taxes are a burden. I mean, who is opposed to that. I mean, are there really differences between right. the parties or between you know, the far left and the far right about how we go about cutting taxes? Or is everybody just get it done and let's not be back here in another five years? Well, absolutely. I'll tell you exactly who's opposed to it. It's the individuals who uh, collect and then spend the property taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we so see- So local governments are going to be mm-hmm. angry about, about the changes in the system. A- absolutely. I mean, you only need to look as far back as uh, you know, the SB2, HB3 debates of, of previous sessions when we started putting uh, revenue cap limits either on uh, school districts or on uh, political subdivisions, whatever the case might be, is you would have thought you just kicked the hornet's nest that said cities on it if it was a really hackneyed political cartoon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they just they came out of the woodwork. And, you know, not every single one of the critiques against those particular policies were in bad faith, but many were simply untenable unless you absolutely start from the start from the premise this money is entitled to whatever the political subdivision is and we are allowed to get it however however we see fit if we want to raise the tax rates that's fine if you want to uh, balloon our revenue out of control that's fine but we're the local governments and we're entitled to it mm-hmm. that that doesn't carry water anymore. No. I think pe- people are far too uh, keen consumers of not only the information that's out there, they know what's coming out of their bank account every year, right. going into their escrow or they're cutting the check directly to the county. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that um, I think is a, is a misconception is that people don't really know how much they pay in, in property taxes. I mean, certainly the, the public opinions would show that it's a it's a significant burden on people. So they know that it's that it's a, a significant amount of money that they spend every month that's going in into escrow and so on. So I think so I think, you know, 
there's a ton of money to work with here mm-hmm. uh, with the surplus. Um, there's there's a ton of demand and anger about the situation. Uh, so it seems like those two things could get together and create a real opportunity to do something on property taxes. Move on real quick uh, to another issue that, that both mentioned, uh, that everybody's mentioned really, is school safety. Obviously, mm-hmm. with the tragedy in Uvalde last year, um, it has to be something that, that the legislature is going to have to address. It seems like the, the two sides are lining up, um, as you might expect, with uh, Republicans talking mostly about mental health issues and making you know finding ways to identify folks who are already troubled who may you know further who may end up committing those kinds of crimes and mm-hmm. trying to identify them and getting them help uh, before they they end up doing that versus the left which of course goes right to gun control and saying well if you just eliminate all guns then no one can commit gun crimes uh, which is a, is a odd argument <laughs> but um, but I mean, how do you think that's going to shape up um, going into going into the session? Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just put the bottom line up front. I think any sort of restrictive measures on uh, firearm purchasing or ownership are, are just dead on arrival. And that's mm-hmm. not me saying this is a, a Second Amendment zealot, though I could probably be I could probably be called such. Um, but I, I just think that if you look at the expressions of both legislatures, both in last session uh, and in sessions previous, it's just there's no there's no appetite for it. Mm-hmm. You see bills get filed that get heard and don't even have the votes to get out of the committees. Yeah. Um, so I don't think do, that's do Republicans what, pay a price for that. I mean, it's 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 a little squirm. I mean, just as you know, as a comms yeah. person, it's yeah. a little squirm inducing, you know, to watch, you know, to watch. Uh, you know, people who have been affected by the tragedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, say, you know, this is what I want. This is what I think would make my community safe. And to have, you know, Republican politicians sit there and, and you know, be defiant in the face yeah. of that and say, you know, you know, we're not we're not going to allow any gun restrictions. And so I'm, I'm curious to know mm-hmm. if, you know, if you think that Republicans will ultimately pay a price for that in the end. To be honest with you, no. And that's not that's not me being cynical or doubling down on kind of the the ethos of the state that really supports uh, autonomy and self-defense and the ability to defend oneself. I honestly don't think that the ideas that that they're passing on, even though there are folks that are very animated, let's let's not act like uh, slain children is not one of the most visceral, uh, one of the most visceral concepts that that we have in our in our zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. But that being said, is none of these ideas that they're proffering and they're selling them as packages or selling them individually. Would fix that. Now, on on the other side too, I, and I do want to caution conservatives because it's like the whole the whole idea of pre screening, interv- you know, catching somebody beforehand. That's that's not a perfect solution either. There are a lot of things we can do in that space. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but that in and of itself is not a perfect solution. Say all the way down to the folks who want to make sure all but one uh, door to the school is locked. Yeah. I mean, all it takes is one teacher going out for a smoke break and that entire system is, is brought down. But what we see and what we generally look at, and I don't want to go too much into my history about, you know, with police consulting and, and whatnot and security management. If you do say so yourself. Yeah, Cincinnati Zoo, you might have heard of it. (laughs) But um, one of the big things that you can do is make the marginal improvements. You know, like, for example, the the locked door. The the locked door thing is a little more complicated than just making sure doors are locked, because obviously you have OSHA considerations and things Mm -hmm. like that as well. But making sure that, you know, you do have a physically hardened structure. There are ways of detecting and interceding somebody that might be a, a, a threat to people. And there are ways that we can actually... I don't want to say there's going to be easy ways to, you know, all we need to do is legislate, don't be evil and don't do that stuff, because obviously that's not possible. Why can't we do that? But there are ways that somebody who is is feeling that level of disaffectation, someone who's getting into those those, 
abysses of, of, of mental illness. Depression, mental illness. Yeah. yeah, to make sure that they're at least being detected and making sure we're making a good effort to pull them out. But otherwise, you know, the policies of let's restrict uh, magazines to whatever size, let's, you know, raise the age for uh, purchasing, um, you know, certain weapons, which even again, let's uh, let's assume that even was constitutional. You know, let's, you know, that in and of itself may have interceded in this particular path, the one guy in Uvalde did, but it wouldn't necessarily have dealt with the mass other or the and, other and that's what I think that the if you're going to do gun restrictions, you really have to demonstrate that the that the effect of your restriction would have actually stopped these crimes from taking place, which right. is always the very difficult thing uh, for them on their part. So, all right, so we've talked about the policies, talked about the legislature, the inauguration. I want to get into a couple of things that I happen to see, which I just want to kind of get your take on. This is sure. you know a completely different direction here. Um, so I want to give you know I want to give Democrats their time as well, liberals their time because you know they're going to be a big part of the legislature as well. What I thought was interesting was what it seemed, what appeared to be some rebranding on the part of, of Texas Democrats because maybe they're tired of getting criticized as being the big spenders and people who are always, you know, big tax, big spend. Um, I saw that Representative Trey Martinez Fisher uh, from San Antonio uh, issued a statement uh, on behalf of the Democrats uh, talking about the inaugural, the inaugural speech as well. And so I wanted to, wanted to read a couple paragraphs from this just because I thought it was interesting in terms of the framing and the communication and the branding. Uh, he said, all over the states, families are having difficult conversations around the kitchen table about rising costs of good and ser- goods and services. A dozen eggs are $6. College tuition, tuition is rising and insurance and utility bills are skyrocketing. Almost kind of sounds like Republicans, right? I mean, it's a lot of Republicans are criticizing uh, Biden for inflation and the cost of goods and all of that as well. So, you know, so I'm on board. I'm with this message. Uh, Texas Republicans, and there's where the hit comes, Texas Republicans have controlled the state for nearly 30 years and 30 years later, costs for Texas families have never been higher. We <clears throat> we should use this historic moment to right the wrongs of the last 30 years. House Democrats will lead on cutting costs for Texas families, and we will work with anyone that's ready to work with us to deliver for Texans. So, you know, if I didn't know any better and he wasn't talking about Republicans versus Democrats, I would think maybe this is a conservative talking about fiscal responsibility, fiscal restraint. Uh, this is not something that I think we've heard uh, from from the Democratic caucus. Certainly, you know, the you know two years ago when we were doing election protection and doing all the voter suppression and the very far left rhetoric that we're hearing from, does this demonstrate a shift in their branding, a shift in their messaging, do you think, um, and, and you know, maybe even a shift in their strategy in terms of going into this session? It very well may, but I think it, uh, I think it more reflects you know, best practices in the laws of holes, whereas you find yourself in one, you just stop digging. <laughs> um, and I think, and I think uh, something that's important to point out is they've talked about you know, that it costs increasing over the last 30 years. And that, that has happened. I'm not going to, not going to dispute that. And I am going to, uh, I would actually accept the premise that, you know, it is getting tough, uh, for Texans. Now I would ask, uh, uh, Mr. Martinez Fisher, uh, who he voted for in this last uh, presidential election and want to know if he want to take another shot at maybe that messaging uh, question, <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and, and look, I mean, obviously, you know, ec- uh, economists are, are relatively aligned on the fact that, you know, presidents, can't necessarily cause inflation. They can't necessarily cause recessions, but they can send a lot of signals through the institutions that do. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I think what we're seeing at the federal level is almost just you know reckless spending, which obviously the profligate spending, whether through the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, ironically enough, uh, you know drives so much of this, uh, uh, in, you know, uh, circ- uh, cyclically, and so. 
pointing out that you know that things are more expensive right now, I don't think redounds to uh, to Mr. Martinez Fisher's benefit. Now, I will say that if you looked at the way the cost of living has increased in states other than Texas versus Texas, mm-hmm. I think the last thirty years also don't necessarily support his messaging. Now. Will this mean that all the bills that we see from the House caucus will be, you know, fiscally neutral, you know, paid for as they go? Probably not. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'm not going to hold my breath on that, Brian. You know, in the same day that I read that, um, uh, that, I read that statement, um, I also read in the, the Texan News um, that, that a Hayes County Democrat proposes mandatory climate change action plan for Texas, mm. which, of course, if you know anything about these climate change action plans, they usually pop up in cities. They're popping up in cities across the, uh, across the country. They tried to do one in San Antonio. And, of course, the upshot for most of these climate change action plans is, of course— to make energy more expensive. And of course, if energy is more expensive, literally everything, everything you do, everything you buy, uh, it becomes more expensive. Mm-hmm. And so some some Democrats are not on board with that message, or at least mm-hmm. uh, are, are not yet, um, um, you know, getting in line with the branding that the Democrats are going to be the cost cutters uh, of this of this legislative session. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll move on from that because uh, I want to get in depth on some on, a, on an issue that's probably one of the top two or three issues uh, that we're going to be getting into, mm-hmm. and that is the issue of parent empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've heard a lot about that. I want to talk a little bit about kind of what your thoughts are and like how people are using that in terms of parent empowerment. Um, I do know that as we've followed this issue over the last couple of years, it clearly was you know a pandemic induced um, uh, changes in education. I think is what started it, where people, uh, you know, we had virtual, uh, virtual people were you know, doing classes remotely, doing classes virtually, and it literally opened up a window uh, in a lot of cases to what was going on in the classrooms uh, that parents did not know about or the parents had not seen before. And of course, I'll spare everybody the details of going through all of it. But of course, you had the, the election in Virginia, where that was a major issue. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, the, the, the Democrat nominee coming out and saying things like, you know, parents shouldn't be telling teachers what to teach. And it sort of exposed uh, this uh, this um, unfortunate um, uh, reality, which is that a lot of parents were starting to learn for the first time that maybe the teachers and principals and administrators and school board folks, or these school officials, were not actually the partners that they thought they had in teaching their kids. That they would learn about what's going on in schools, they would learn about things like CRT or this radical gender ideology. Uh, the way it was being taught, or just frankly were dissatisfied with the quality of the education mm-hmm. that their kids were getting. And so as concerned parents, of course, you would do what any parent would do. You go and you talk to the person who's in charge of teaching your kids, whether that's the principals or the teachers directly. And what they found was is that a lot of folks um, uh, basically didn't want to have it. They, they were obstinate. They were uh, angry about being questioned. Mm-hmm. And so they went up the level to the, to the superintendents and they, they you know, found a system that was simply uh, created to protect the teachers and the principals from any of kind of criticism. So they went up to the school boards and that's where I think things exploded because you have now these, these meetings once a month or every so often where parents are coming in, uh, addressing their concerns, get, getting heated, getting yelled at, um, and then their mics are getting turned off. And in some cases we're actually 
actually getting arrested and thrown out of, of school board meetings. And it all kind of toppled over um, because because I think parents felt misled, uh, mm-hmm. certainly felt um, uh, frustrated that they did not have uh, the kind of control over what they thought you know was was a good education that their kids were getting. And now here we are at the start of the legislative session, and parents are demanding that if they can't get recourse in their school districts and they can't get recourse with their uh, school boards, that now the state legislature has to step in. And sort of that's the that's the thirty thousand foot demand. I think that parents are now um, um, uh, you know demanding at the at the at the state legislature gates. Um, how's it? What what kind of policy is that gonna is that gonna turn into now? Um, uh, I mean, are legislators reacting to that? Um, and what does that look like in terms of what state legislators are gonna do uh, to resolve these issues for parents? Well, that's that's quite a mouthful. I mean, in, in which ways it could go too. Um, well, to be honest with you, I think what it, it's a it's a very complicated issue because I'd even say probably about sixty percent of uh, of Texans are actually very happy with 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 the status quo that they're in right now. Mm-hmm. But just I'm taken from a matter of public policy. If we had forty percent of bridges failing, uh, <laughs> you know, that would not. <laughs> that we would not call that a resounding success. Right. You know, we we can't take we can't take the fact that you know a majority are doing what they're supposed to. You know, a majority of people follow the laws and don't commit any crimes, but a substantial part of our you know Article Four and Five budget, uh, you know, goes towards people that do crimes. So that's something that I think that we need to address from an element of public policy that we can't just go and eh, most people are happy, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned why individuals were starting to. Have, have you know the consciousness of what's going on in the um, in the education systems writing and you know it's not even you know so simple as well the teachers or the administrators or the boards or what have you it's a fact that they all there there seems to be a almost a hive mind there and again i would not throw i wouldn't even throw the teachers in there because i know most teachers the, well, the ones i've talked to are like you know the you know the the TA or the union does what they're going to do. The association does what they're going to do. You know, so long as our retirement's not touched, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't care. They may, mm-hmm. they pick fights with whatever. I just don't want them putting a hand in their retirement. Well, the problem is what they go do then is not only they, they, you know, they'll fight for the retirement. Then they talk about, you know, issues of uh, classroom discipline of which we need to have those discussions as well. Mm-hmm. But they start dealing with things like, you know, basically completely unmoored content standards, you know, where we actually are having, you know, right. the stuff where, you know, you look at some of these more high profile accounts, the libs of TikTok, things like that, which I almost think I, I you know, for the longest time thought that was, this was a parody account because well, half that stuff's coming from Texas. And right. I was like, I was like, that's that's no, scary. Yeah, there's no way that's happening. There's no way that's happening. Uh, San Antonio, yeah. Fort Worth is like yeah. ground zero for some of this woke stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and so the, t- the parents are saying like, whoa, we never agreed to this bargain. There's even teachers going, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that. And it's like. That's fine, but what are we going to do for the ones that are? Right. And and the problem is not necessarily that, you know, here is one item of illicit content that's getting in there, and it's part, you know, it's pervasive throughout the state curriculum. It's basically that, you know, the view from the educrat hive mind is that they can, that parents, like you said, can't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know that they have no recourse. Oh well, then vote for different school board members. Right. Well, school boards have elections that aren't on the prime cycle. Um, not only that, but special interests are involved in local elections, as we've seen. Some school boards have, have flipped the other way. Some school boards have doubled down on the on the depravity. Um, and the problem is that 
I think that generally reflects the democratic consensus. Now, let me qualify that. When I say it reflects the democratic consensus, meaning like AISD, Austin Independent School District, they are going to not teach from a conservative center point more so than, say, one, uh, like a rural school district out, out in the panhandle, we'll say, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, what if 60% of those parents like that? That's that's one thing. But if 40% of parents are having their values taught at home completely erased, contradicted, minimized, told that they're lesser than, what the hell's going on? We are essentially saying that, you know, one of the most animating principles of the state, you know, whether it's again, conservative thought in philosophy, conservative thought in prudence, whatever the case might be, we're saying that's wrong, and we're saying you 40% now need to feed at the same trough of, right. uh, trough of slop too. And it's, I mean, and it's not even, I don't even think the, the Democratic side, oh, we're, we're serving 60% of, this, of the district and not 40%, and so, you know, we're doing the right thing because it's the majority. I think what frustrates parents is that there is no... Uh, or at least some parents that have been the most vocal about it, is that there is no sense from the education establishment that they have an obligation to try and make things right. Like even for the 40 percent, is there, you know, was there a discussion about, well, here's why we're teaching what we're teaching in schools or here's why we're, you know, um, uh, you know, forcing these kids to participate in activities that you don't agree with. Or we might have policies. I mean, there are actually school districts that have policies that prohibit teachers from talking to parents if a child is experiencing mental or psychological stress at school because they're because supposedly they're afraid of what you know the parent might do um um so I think I think the the frustration comes from they're they're not willing to work with us on our legitimate concerns, mm-hmm. right? And I think you know from a from a public policy standpoint, you know parents, you know we there's all this talk about school choice, right? And I think one of the more controversial things that I've talked to people about is that you know if you do the public if the the if you look at the polling, if you look at the you know we do focus grouping and we talk to folks all the time. The reality is is that most parents don't like they, what they want is not necessarily choice. They don't want to spend every August looking through spreadsheets and, and deciding which schools are the best and then sending them to which schools. It's not, you know, educating your child is not like picking the right grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, it's a lot more than that. It's where you want to live. It's a place where you want to work. Are we close to grandma so we can get help with the kids? And so what they want is, is what they want is they want to know what's going on in the classroom. They want to know that they're a partner in the education of the child and that the teacher is a partner in the education of the child and that if there are issues there, that there are legitimate concerns that they have, that they have somebody who's willing to work with them on that and not tell them, tell them to pound sand and cut off their mic. And I think if if we can, at the, the state legislature level, you know, somehow, you know, create a system where parents are in charge, where parents have more control, where they can enforce that relationship and that, and that you know, the school district officials have to be more responsive to mm-hmm. parents' concerns. I think at the end of the day, the choice issue might might even go away, mm-hmm. right? Because, because you've got a system in which people are resolving issues. But the reality is, as long as the teachers and the system, or not the teachers, but as long as the system is set up to protect 
people from ever having to, you know, to resolve those issues, then I think you have to have choice. You absolutely mm -hmm. have to have the ability for a parent to decide, well, I'm not going to send them to that school. I'm going to be able to send them to a different school. And by the way, choice doesn't just mean, well, then you can uproot your entire life and move 100 miles away to a school district that you like. I mean, that's not really a choice for the vast majority of people. People who have those choices are already making them or they're sending their kids to private schools because they have the resources. It's the vast majority of the rest of us that then have to either decide, make these really tough decisions mm -hmm. to uproot our entire lives in order to find the right school for our kids, which mm -hmm. is not, the, you know, it's, that's, that's not a decision we would ever expect parents to make. Absolutely. And that, and that you know, they're, they're, they do play that into, and I think the opponents of any sort of uh, parental empowerment measures do this uh, on purpose. They basically allow that false dichotomy to to proliferate because even if you have somebody let's, let's say because i mean the, the lieutenant governor spoke specifically about individuals in rural areas mm -hmm. if you have somebody there yes well a million parochial schools uh pop up in mule shoe i don't i don't see that happening but let's also look at you have an individual that's in mule shoe we'll even just say just for example and this person might have some certain learning struggles, might have um, special needs, not so much that, you know, that they're not being served in the school, but that the school is not fully arrayed to give them the full services. Mm -hmm. Part of the, the, uh, the school choice push, I think, is making some resources available wherein that individual can supplement that, whether it's virtually, whether it's through some other education modality, whatever the case might be. It need, we need to get out of this mindset that like every student has the same general curriculum. And then, yeah, we might have we might have some remedial curriculum, some advanced curriculum. But like we're still putting kids in the four, uh, three buckets at that point. And so really having the most flexibility in the system, I think, is is what the folks want. And not only that, but once that's in the system. This other states that have done it, the sky's never fallen. Right. You know, we're, we're going to hear that, like, you know, we, you know, let's say that universal school choice pass and all the money follows the student, and then poof, Lubbock ISD just disappears. Like, in, in this, <laughs> that's never going to happen. It never happened anywhere it's done it before. But everyone uses these chicken little stories that mm -hmm. simply just don't hold water. And, you know, we're doing it at the cost of an, an almost an entire generation. Whether, yeah. and, you know, look at, look at some of these inner city schools. I mean, uh, Houston ISD is in the news right now cause about, you know, fitting to go into receivership. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's because there's that much poor performance going on. And to be honest with you, the bureaucratic inertia just will not allow for that change. And then one final thing on, you know, I, I say hive mind somewhat flippantly, but you generally see the shared talking points, the shared, um, you know, again, chicken little scenarios. It's once a actual opposition is, I mean, becomes such, you know, almost becomes sentient and starts, uh, you know, starts just trying to protect the body. Yeah. You know, that's when I usually get, you know, I usually get very suspect of that because mm -hmm. I'm like, this is not about, you know, you say, you know, the argument is saying, look, we want to do this to preserve good public schools for our children. I, I, I once bought that argument. I no longer do just because I've heard some of the way these arguments have been aired. Sure. Especially because, you know, you see the statistics and, you know, by the time kids get to third grade, or fourth grade, only a third of them can can read at grade level. Only a third of them can do math, and yet the opponents of school choice, their solution to that is simply give us more money for what we're already doing and take away any other accountability measures. Right. We don't want testing. And I'm I'm not sure that someone who is like really really strongly trying to 
fix our public education system and really cares about, uh, you know, making sure kids are getting the best quality education. I'm not sure that they can look at those results and say, well, the solution is to give us more money and less accountability. And, and, and And the thing is, they should embrace this, too, because this will give them more flexibility too. You know, if we have just a general per student allotment to accomplish X, and that's going to every district, you know, some districts might need more help with X. Uh, others might need less with that, but more with Y. Mm-hmm. The less we can, the more we can de-silo that, the better it would be for the student, for the district, for the delivery of an education curriculum to that student. We're locked in a system where, again, we're not in one size fits all, but we're like one size fits most. Mm-hmm. And there's no, you know, there's no innovation. There's no, um, I would say there's no, uh, you know, cost accountability. We're, we're just doing things antithetically to we do almost any other area in public policy. Well, I think the, as with property tax and all of the opportunities that we have there, all the historic uh, opportunities we're going to have there, I think things have bubbled up to a situation or the, that people are frustrated, maybe even angry enough mm. that they're going to start demanding uh, real action on this. And I think there's a real opportunity to get something historic done in Texas uh, this legislative session. So uh, with that, we have run a little bit over time. So for in a week in which nothing happened, uh, <laughs> except some speeches, um, there was there's obviously a lot to talk about just because we're getting ready for the legislative session and things going on in the state. So, again, uh, I'm Brian Phillips. This is Derek Cohen. You've been watching The Right Idea. We really, pay you, really appreciate you watching and listening in, and we'll see you next time.